death. It's the most inevitable part of life. Some might say it's the only guarantee, but it's also a topic that many people shy away from because it makes us feel uncomfortable, scared or upset. It's often swept under the rug, not acknowledged or talked about until, of course, we come face to face with it ourselves. We hope to end this taboo through a series of interviews with many different people from all over Western Australia. We talk to ordinary people about their views on the grief, loss, love and celebration that is death and dying. This is a conversation on death. My name is Betty McGeever. Um, I live in Cottesloe. I originally came from the bush. I work most of my life in public libraries. And I'm here today invited to discuss perhaps my attitude and attitudes to death and how they have changed over my lifetime. I'm 84 years old and, yeah, very comfortable with my life. I think I've always been really good about death. Growing up in the country, actually I considered this a lot when my husband died because we had a really good marriage for 44 years. We were great mates and... When he died, I I suffered no grief whatsoever and I was actually quite worried about that. And I think the fact that I grew up on a farm is quite influential on you. As a child, you know, we had beloved dogs and um, a horse died. My dad had to shoot a few animals to put them out of their misery when they were crooked, but these were animals we were very fond of often, particularly when I was a little girl. And I think you just learnt that there was birth and death and... You had, there was no point in not accepting it. You could feel a bit sad and say, oh, well, okay, I miss Bess the horse because she's gone. But you just moved on and then there was probably a new horse and in the case of the dogs, there was a new puppy. And so it was just a part of life. It was just so natural. So I think I've never been particularly disturbed about death, but I, th- I observe that a lot of people are or have been. I think we talk about death a lot more now. When your husband died... Uh, that was was that traumatic. You said you didn't suffer grief, but the knowledge that he was in palliative care. Yes, yeah, so. he, he had suffered pretty poor health for uh, probably a year or eighteen months. It had been beginning to limit what he could do. Um, he's a very stubborn man. He did continue to do quite a lot, but also um, he was diagnosed. He had many health problems, but he was eventually diagnosed with esophageal cancer. And that's actually what carried him off. And I can still remember when he was diagnosed with that. He's, he was he had lupus, he had diabetes, he was getting hernias. His body was breaking down, I think, before the esophageal cancer hit him. So when he went into palliative care, wonderful Bethesda, um, a very young, uh, compassionate, articulate doctor asked Emmett what did he want in these last possibly weeks of his life. And Emmett said very clearly, I want to die tomorrow. And the doctor said, I don't think I can quite manage that, but I get the drift. And he had many, many visitors in the couple of weeks that he was in there and he made it quite clear to everyone that he he was a very witty man, he was still cracking jokes, having people laughing, and he made it quite clear to everyone that he wanted to die. He was ready to die and he wanted to go. And that also made it extremely easy for me, knowing that he wasn't um, denying death or fighting to stay alive. He was just going out as quickly as he can. I actually think he might have, he stopped taking food. He was just sucking on ice blocks. And I actually have a feeling that was probably to hasten it. 
he was very strong. He, he was a divorced alcoholic when I met him. <laughs> Never had a drink while he was married to me, which was, which was his great strength because he'd lost everything because of the grog. Um, and I don't know, we were the right people for each other. We were very, I, see, I just said to you at the beginning, I think I've had the luckiest life for anyone I know. We were really, it was a really good marriage. We were really good friends. We had a lot of fun together. We travelled together, etc. But I don't think, I sometimes think we each withheld a tiny little bit. We, we both still had an independent streak. Um, we didn't have to be in each other's pocket all the time. I had some interests that Emmett didn't have. Um, and I think we were both always really happy with the other's enjoyment of something, um, but we didn't have to be with them. And I think that was that probably also helped when he died. In a society where we have, we think, the technology to prolong yes. the end, yes. and for many good reasons, you know, doctors do, as they say, fight to keep people mm -hmm. alive, do you think that we have, as a society, got used to that and then, and so actually forgotten that the end is something that will come to all of us and that perhaps fighting to stay alive is not the best way to have a good death? Yes, I would certainly agree with that. I think um, I've known a few people who are really crook and I thought they're on the way out and they've recovered and gone on to have a few more good years. So I think... Maybe you fight to get back to the life that you had when you were healthier, even if you're old. Um, that's fine, but yes, when the end is inevitable, I think, yeah, let it go. I, I don't see any point in fighting to stay alive and maybe the medical profession sometimes does that to an unnecessary degree and it just prolongs the suffering the frustration for the family, perhaps I don't, I don't know. I guess every case is different, but yes, I think the technology enables us to do things that perhaps are not always desirable. Now you're 84. You're fighting fit, as I can see. You're uh, very active. Tell me a little bit about how, at this age and stage, you are embracing life, um, not fighting death, but but absolutely living. Um, you know, your best yeah. life? I'm very lucky. I think I'm, you know, one of the luckiest people I know. I've, I have got really good health and, you know, I don't do anything foolish. I've never smoked, but I have a few drinks. Um, I overeat. I eat an enormous amount, but I, I really love healthy things. So most of what I eat is, you know, a bit of meat, fruit and vegetables, but um, I eat a lot. Don't have a particular sweet tooth, so I'm not in danger of diabetes. Um... So I'm very lucky in many ways. Um, you make your luck to some extent, I think, and I've never been a sporty person, so I've always had the excuse I, I worked fairly long hours, I was pretty wed to my job, and I always had the excuse, oh, I don't have time to exercise, I don't have time to do anything. But I, I didn't have that excuse when I retired, and I remember the city of Fremantle enabled us all to have free health checks at one stage, and... I went in thinking I'm going to get, you know, gold star stuff. And mostly I did. I was my lungs and heart and everything are really good. But I, the last time I went in for the sort of interview when your results came back, this doctor said to me, um, you're probably going to live to a very old age given your state unless, you know, something comes up suddenly. 
and he said, and unless you start doing some exercise, you're probably going to have a miserable old age. I thought, oh, it really shocked me. And so as soon as I retired, I looked around for um, a sport that I thought I could participate in. And mostly I looked and thought, absolutely not. And one day we were sitting having breakfast by the river and I said to my husband, that's what I'm going to do. Some kayakers went by. So in just after I retired, 16 years ago, I think now, um, I went down to the local Swan Canoe Club and enrolled and did the wet induction, which was a bit challenging. And I've been kayaking only once a week ever since. But also I enrolled in exercise class, very gentle gym, do with sort of balance, flexibility and strength. Um, at Cottesloe, very close to my home, and I've been going there every week for nearly 16 years now, and I'm sure those two things are good. I do all my own cleaning and gardening. I don't have any help. Um, that's probably quite, you know, it's a bit physical, not quite as often <laughs> as I should, but, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm on my feet a lot out and about. I'm intrigued by the kayaking, I have to tell you. So why <laughs> kayaking rather than sailing or, you know, parachuting? Okay. Oh, that's far too adventurous for me. Um, sailing, I'm, funnily enough, I'm sort of not a water person and yet kayaking, you're sort of sitting at water level. Um, I just saw these kayaks going by and they were on the water and there were birds around and you can, you're on the river. It's really good for the soul. The other thing about kayaking, which maybe I didn't even realise when I made that immediate decision, and I never backed off from that, um, you can do it really gently, slowly, tranquilly. I mean, there's three or four of us who go out most Thursday mornings and um, sometimes we even get to a nice spot near the, near the shore, in the shade with bushes around and we sit and talk for a while. And we have a saying, what's heard on the river stays on the river. <laughs> a few secrets have been shared there. Um, but also, if you want to really do vigorous exercise, it's good. People say you'll get big shoulders, but actually your, your whole trunk is this tiny little bit of stress with every stroke of the paddle because you've got your foot on, on pedals, on sort of stoppers, and so every stroke you do, you're sort of actually pulling against that. So I think it's very, very good for probably your bones. No, it's a, lov it's a lovely, um, gentle sport. It's not a pretty picture now watching me get in and out of the kayak. It's, it's, quite, it's quite difficult because you've got to sort of slide your weight over without tipping the kayak out. This is a technique and I still follow that technique, but I've always had very weak knees and um, that's a handicap. So now I'm... I practically roll out of the kayak at the end and onto the deck and then have to get up on all fours and hobble up. Um, occasionally there's blokes there and they'll say, do you want a hand? And I say, no, thank you. I'm doing it myself as long as I can, but it looks awful. And in terms of, um, you know, the, the, the last stage of life, if that's where you're at, yes. um, you're certainly very active in the community. Tell us a little bit about your activism and community work. Okay. I think that's the other thing that's really important to me is that I'm useful. Um, I probably didn't realise that totally until I retired because working in a public library, um, a lot of it's sort of supermarket stuff, if you like. You're lending books. We were lending books, doing a transaction about every 20 seconds for 60 hours a week at Fremantle in my heyday. 
just amazing. But also you do what I would call the boutique service. We had a very good information service at Fremantle City Library and it is it is true we changed lives sometimes. And um, even, even the general reading for leisure for some people who are alone, it keeps their sanity, it gives them company, particularly before the days of the internet. Um, it's really important. So I think... I worked in a caring and useful profession all my life. And when I retired, I did sort of back off for a little while. I had no plans, very deliberately had no plans when I retired. I thought I've had a plan every day, every week, every month for about 50 years. So I just stepped back and I went to, you know, morning concert here and there and opening of an exhibition here and there. It was very leisurely and it was just very nice to wake up in the morning and think, what will I do today? But probably within months I was thinking, "Mm, want to do something a little bit more meaningful than this, a little bit involving helping other people. That's really important to me. I got involved in a very small way with helping refugees. I tried to help an Ethiopian woman learn to drive because she wanted to be a taxi driver and I failed, which was probably fortunate because I think she would have killed people on the road. Um, And, yeah, I did a few little things like that and then I began to be very much aware from the the time of the Tampa incident, the children overboard, the Twin Towers and the subsequent Islamophobia, I began to feel very uncomfortable about our attitude to um, refugees, asylum seekers in particular, um, and our attitude to people that we seem to value less than ourselves, see them as the other, we're different. Um, so I got more and more involved in trying to publicise the plight of the asylum seekers who were arriving at Christmas Island and then subsequently in 2013 they began to send them to Manus and Nauru. Um, I went to every forum that I could. The Red Cross was doing quite a lot at that time because they were overwhelmed with the people who were coming off Christmas Island in mid-2013. I offered accommodation um, in the other half of my my home. I live in an old duplex, so it was sort of perfect because if you didn't want to be involved, you just gave them the key and walked away. Um, And um, had a young Iranian asylum seeker came to live there and he's still there eight, nine years later. And like family, um, that's been really good for me as well as it's given him stability um, and a safe place the first probably 18 months he was there, he wasn't permitted to work. Very demoralising. He's a professional man with a couple of degrees and he felt for the first... They they get a benefit, very small, but first time in his life he felt he was taking charity. It was very... His pride was deeply hurt. But not particularly through him, but I I became more and more aware of the appalling cruelty and conditions on Nauru and Manus and in more recent years, as many of those people have, over a thousand of them have actually been transferred to Australia, mostly for medical reasons, after long delays, which cause people to lose their sight, lose limbs, lose years. No, I won't go there. Terrible. So I've got very involved in that and I've established um, almost by accident a group in the Western suburbs called the Western Suburbs Do Gooders. And um, we write letters to politicians, we visit politicians. I think our local member has probably seen every one of us, some of us multiple times. Um, write to the press, try to inform people. My view is um, I would like people, I would like the politicians to think that 
we know, we care and we vote. Now, I think I have certainly in public forums, I think I have a lot of people know a lot more and they do care. Almost always the reaction is shock horror from some who know nothing. And then, you know, this is terrible. What can we do about it? They don't like it. Whether I've changed any votes is quite another matter because I think people vote on a lot of issues and refugees is probably not a very big one. But um, that small group has also, we discovered in early 2020, um, a community-based scheme in Canada called the Community Resettlement Scheme. <clears throat> and you can raise money, send it to a group of five citizens in Canada. It's not a government program. It's on top of the government program. And they sponsor a refugee and there's an agency in Australia, an agency in Canada. They coordinate the whole thing. But you have to raise $20,000 to send to the group of five in Canada, the citizens, and then a refugee is chosen for them and they're put in touch. And slowly, slowly, it's nearly two years and our refugee is going, I think, this month. <laughs> um, that was the best thing we did, I think, because we have actually changed lives. And also for me, there was huge approval in the community for what we were doing. People donated so generously, a lot of people, and some of them very, very generously, because we got many comments saying, I'm so glad to be able to do something practical. I didn't know what to do. And we were so successful that instead of one refugee, we sponsored two couples. And one of the people who helped us, who knew nothing about refugees before she read about our pro program and our event in the paper, she ran an art show which raised about $20,000 on the night, uh, sale, sorry, of donated works. And that helped us to sponsor the two couples in 2020. Their application would have gone in late 2020. But she also, the next year, ran off her own bat another art sale and raised over 30000 She sponsored another couple. So six people have gone out of hellhole, indefinite detention, no future, wasted life in Australia to a new life in Canada. They're met by the group of five. The group of five administers that $20,000 that we've sent them for a year. At the end of the year, they get a the refugee gets a certificate and three years from the date of that certificate they can apply for citizenship it's a brilliant scheme and to be part of that was that's probably one of the well it's probably the best thing I've done since I retired so satisfying that's amazing so it doesn't sound like your common or garden retirees meeting for a coffee morning no perhaps way. discussing you know <laughs> local weeding program does it no <laughs> it's not my scene that would not be my scene no it's, it's good and I've got to know I also work with work with probably I attend quite a lot of group meetings at the moment. I'm attending one, a network in WA. They're working very hard to push the government to give temporary protection visa holders, like the guy that's living in the other half of my house, to give them a pathway to permanency. They've been, since they got work permits, they've been living and working here for, well, they've been living here for probably some of them a decade, and they've been working and paying tax for about eight years, and they're stuck, and they can't bring their families here. In Australia, about 4,000 of them are Afghans. Their wives and children are still in Afghanistan and they're absolutely terrified. I know a guy who's got a wife and three daughters. Now, he hasn't seen them for 10 years, so the girls are puberty, much valued by the Taliban, and they're in hiding. His wife and children are in hiding in Afghanistan. He cannot do a thing about it. 
he can't apply to have family reunion because he's on a temporary protection visa. It's it's cruel. So I've got to know a few of those guys and that's been um, confronting but also just lovely. I just really, really value those friendships. They're, they're really good. So it feels, Betty, that, you know, when, when most people are coming to the end of their useful working life, yeah. You've got a brand new career. I've cranked up again. <laughs> I just, I keep saying to people, after this, I'm going to retire. After the election, I'm going to retire. And they say, yeah, we've heard that before. But I must, I am overwhelmed sometimes and I, I really do need to step back a bit. And I try, I've got a lot of friends and I keep up quite, I like to eat out and, you know, we go out to dinner. I'm going out to dinner Friday night with some friends. And I try, I want to keep that up too. Um, they're, they're all interesting people. The five on Friday, for instance, nothing to do with refugees. We all have birthday in May, actually. That's why we're going out together. And I have to try and keep other aspects of my life going as well. I can be very, I can be very boring. I've got to be careful not to sort of get into the refugee mode with all people because some people don't welcome it. It's no question. That's their right. Yeah, so anyway, it's all good. So you've said that you've, you you feel that you've been very lucky in life, um, especially with health, that you've got a good body and you, you, you've been able to, you know, not really feel the ravages of maybe a disease or even just no. getting older. Um, how do you think you would feel if, say, in the next 10 years you do begin yeah. to lose that mm. capacity? Are you ready for that? I've no idea. I ask myself that occasionally, you know, how will I... Because I've very seldom been ill, I've never really been really ill, I wonder how I'll cope when that happens because I something, Emmett used to say, something's going to get us <laughs> and also something will get one of us first, so, you know, you should be prepared for that and indeed it got him. But, no, I don't know how I'll cope with that. That will be, that will be a big challenge for me, I think, when I can't... I won't be able to do the useful things that I do. I'm quite happy to ask for help. Um, you know, when I'm frail, I'll get a cleaner and get a garden. I hope I can stay in my home. It's on one level. It's easy. It's small. But I quite often ask for help. If I can't do something, I'll ask a neighbour, hey, can you come and have a look at this for me? Um, that doesn't bother me. But when I'm, well, disabled and restricted to my home and can't do anything useful... I consider myself also very, very lucky that um, financially I'm really amazingly well off. I worked all my life. I didn't have kids. I mean, there's two factors that add that up. I had no idea when I retired how well off I'd be. I'd been stuffing money into super, but I hadn't sort of really thought about how it earned or anything like that. I was hopeless. Um, but my super's really good and I've because I've never been a spender, I've got some shares so I'm I'm in a wonderful situation where I can help people and I do um, I do that quite a lot I've helped you know refugees buy a car I've helped a lot of people in very practical ways to help them to give them the leg up to the guy the guy I helped to buy a car he actually paid the money back but that I don't know what what effect that had on his life if he hadn't been able to take that job he was a very shy man I don't think he would front up very well for any interview or asking for a job. He was very shy and his English at that time was appalling. He got a job at night, night time in a bakery. But, you know, I get such pleasure out of that. 
And, and you said to me something that was a little bit intriguing when, when we spoke earlier. You said to me, I never grieve for people who die who are old. What do you mean by that? I just don't see any point in it because, you know, you're born, you live and you die and they've, their life has ended and I'm not going to grieve about that. I, I would grieve probably more for perhaps things that didn't happen in their life if they hadn't had a good life and maybe I could have done something about it or someone else could have done something about it, I would be really sorry about that. I think that comes a little bit from country life. You know, we were we were incredibly cash poor when I was a kid. Um, Dad was developing the farm and my brothers did very well out of that, but we really were very cash poor. And what you had was what you had. If you're lucky enough to have that attitude to life, you accept it how it is, this is how it is, and just... See what you can make of it. Thanks for listening. This interview was recorded on the lands of the Wajak Noongar people and we pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. This oral history collection was commissioned by the State Library of Western Australia and produced by Louisa Mitchell from the Centre for Stories. Narration by Louisa Mitchell. Editing by Mason Velios. And special thanks to executive producer and interviewer Rita Alfred-Sagar.